In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning, and we thank you for this time and the ability to kind of review and get more involved in the message behind the stories. So we ask your blessing to open our minds and our hearts so that we hear what you want us to hear through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Before we get into the book of Daniel, many of you uh, were at Mass this morning, at least I believe most of you were. And uh, did you notice in the first reading anything um, unusual about the story of Jonah and the whale and all of that? Part of you, uh, or a number of you who were here last week and went to Mass uh, last, uh, last Wednesday, uh, you got a little slip of uh, burlap, uh, sackcloth, okay? Uh, that is where that comes from, is the story of Jonah, where it was recommended that people sit in sackcloth and ashes as a form of repentance. All right, and that was very common in the early church, even. The whole idea of signifying some outward sign of repentance was to wear uh, a form of burlap, which is sackcloth. Uh, now, sackcloth, interesting, sackcloth is made from hemp. Real sackcloth is made from hemp which is not permitted to be grown in the United States because it is related to marijuana. Um, so most of the burlap that we have today comes from other countries, or we have something that is made from some other material. Nevertheless, getting back to the story of Jonah, there's a number of things in there that are similar to the stories uh, that are in the book of Daniel. For one thing, Jonah is not history. Jonah is a didactic story, and didactic is sort of a polite way of saying it is fiction. But it is fiction with a moral point. And it's important that you kind of understand that. There are a number of books in the Old Testament that are not history, even though they are represented as history, such as the book of Daniel, all right? So if you don't understand uh, some of the points that are being made, then you have to sort of scratch behind the surface and look at the history. For example, the book of Jonah is written for the Jewish people of around the 4th century B.C., and it is sort of uh, an allegory of a person by the name of Jonah who is told to go to the Ninevites. Now, the Ninevites were not Jewish people. They were pagans who lived in the northern area of what is now the country of Lebanon. All right? And there are two signs in the book of Jonah. 
we're all familiar with one of them, which is what? What? The whale. The, all right, Jonah being swallowed in the belly of a whale for, and staying there for three days. Well, now that in itself, if you think about it, no human being could live in the belly of a whale or any other fish or confinement for three days because of the lack of oxygen. All right? But there's another sign in there that is really more important. And that, could anyone want to venture a guess as to what that other sign is? It's the whole story in itself. The reason that Jonah was commissioned by God to go to the Ninevites is what the essence of the story is for the Jewish people. In other words, the Jewish people have to pay attention to what is going on there because they themselves are in the same boat as the Ninevites. They are becoming pagans because they have abandoned the teachings and the relationship with the God of Israel. And so if Jonah went to the Ninevites and persuaded them to do penance for their sins, that is what the whole story is recommending for the Jewish people of that time period. It's because they have begun to drift away from the teachings of the God of Israel. And what is happening also is that they are going back into the same mode of living that occurred prior to the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity was the culmination of a five-year period of sinful life of the Jewish people. And the only way God could really get their attention and cause them to turn around and change their minds was to narrow them down to a smaller group of people uh, through the uh, conquering of the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south and cart them off to a pagan country. That is when they finally got religion, got to understand where they were wrong, and when they came back, they then picked up the book of Deuteronomy and uh, were more faithful to God for a while. But then, around the 4th century B.C., uh, they began to drift back into the same uh, mode of living. And that's when this book of Jonah is written to start trying to bring them back. Okay. So, Jonah is fiction. Uh, in, the, in the front of the book of Jonah here in the Bible, it says, <clears throat> written in the post-exilic exilic area, probably in the 5th century B.C. This book is a didactic story with an important theological message. Didactic in this way, is a, as I said, is a polite way of saying it's fiction. All right. But it's, in, it's got a theological message, and therefore it's inspired by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. 
And there's many books of the Old Testament the same way. The book of Job. Job is a very interesting book, but you could, you know, if you have any idea of, of life in itself, anyone that, who has got any smarts would know that the book of Jonah is fiction, but there is a, a very sincere and important moral point to it. And there are several others, the book of Tobit and many others, but that doesn't uh, degrade or take away from the importance that we uh, can gain from it. Okay. All right, let's get into the book of Daniel. What I've done here uh, is I'd like to review the first uh, six chapters of this book uh, because I have a feeling that some of you are losing interest uh, because I've sort of emphasize the fact uh, of how unrealistic uh, these stories are. And I've done so primarily to get you to see that you really need to get behind the story to find out what it's really all about. All right? Also, the first six chapters... um, are a totally different form or a different style than you will find in the next five chapters. All right. Uh, chapter seven and eight uh, radically changes the style and therefore was probably written by someone else other than whoever wrote the first six chapters. And we think that these were probably written by several different people over a period of time. So, what I want to do is to quickly review each chapter and then have you see if the um, points that are being made, that is the the crisis, the trial, the resolve, the result, etc., are what you thought it was or do you have a different opinion? Now, I'd like to have you look at this <clears throat> as being somewhat unfinished because if we come up with some different ideas and you're very welcome to <clears throat> offer different opinions uh, and we all agree on that, then I'll revise this to include those. All right. The other thing that I'd like to include, and I didn't in this one, uh, partly because I didn't have the time, but uh, there was another reason. We had talked about other passages uh, or passages from other parts of the Bible that somewhat apply or are uh, a good comparison. I would like to include those uh, at the bottom of uh, this uh, schedule here uh, and then revise it. Okay. So, Anyone have uh, any questions on that? You understand what we're going to do here? Okay. All right. The first chapter, as you know, was what we've called the food test. This is where David and his four companions, who were exiles, Jewish exiles, now living in Babylon, were selected, along with others, to become part 
of a group of men who were going to be trained uh, to be servants of various kinds and various levels in the king's um, court. And they were to eat from the table of the king and drink from the wines. Now, many of those foods were foods forbidden uh, to Jewish people. Okay? Remember, Jewish people had very strict dietary laws and they could not uh, consume certain foods. Part of that was, or originally, it was for health and hygiene, uh, but became part of their religious observance over a period of time. So you kind of remember the story. Uh, David and his companions uh, refuse, and they request that uh, the supervisor that they were under, I forgot uh, the title, but nevertheless, uh, the person that was sort of uh, preparing these uh, people for service in the king's court, uh, they were asked to provide vegetables instead of uh, the food from the king's table. Originally, uh, the supervisor uh, was reluctant to do so because of fear of his own job, but eventually gave in. And, of course, the story is that David uh, and his companions uh, were much brighter naturally and smarter and so forth and so on, than all the others, and therefore um, everyone uh, sort of lived happily ever after, in a way. Okay. <clears throat> Anyone get a different opinion of that story, or a different idea, or a concept? And don't be afraid to open up, because that's what it's for. The whole idea is we often have different ideas or different concepts. Uh, Jose, hold on a minute. Barbara? Yes? That's right. As I said uh, the night we talked about that, they had vegetarians back in those days, too. Okay. Yeah, Jose, you had a point? I'm sorry, I didn't... Oh, uh, that goes all the, that goes all the way back to uh, Moses, the time of Moses, when Moses said that certain foods could not be eaten. And as you know, pork up until uh, the last, well, up until refrigeration was real common, uh, carried the disease trichinosis, and it was. Uh, a very serious disease if people acquired that. Trichinosis is uh, parasites that get into the uh, digestive system, isn't it not? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, in the flesh, yeah. And so it was very important. Uh, blood was the same uh, way. Uh, Moses declared that the Jewish people could not consume the blood of animals, uh, and it was for again the same kind of health reason. However, however, over a period of time, it took on 
uh, meanings that were never originally intended. And even up to the time of Christ, uh, the whole idea of consuming blood was forbidden because the culture assumed that if you consume the blood of animals, you would become like that animal because the life was carried in the blood. All right. Uh, I'm, that that's right. That's in the Acts of the Apostles. That's where to to counteract. Yes, uh, that scene was to void, make void that particular rule. All right. Not so much because of hell. That scene was... Um, we're getting two, two or three different things mixed in here. Let me, let me finish my statement, though. The whole idea of consuming blood was because disease was carried in the blood. All right? But it took on a life of its own by people thinking that they would become like the animal of the uh, blood that they had consumed. That wasn't the case. But Jesus used that superstition and turned it around. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life or supernatural life in you. And with the whole idea is he wanted people to consume his blood so that they would become like him. So that he was using the same superstition that they had before, but turning it around to a different meaning. All right. Now, we go further into the Acts of the Apostles, and <clears throat> that's the point Hosea is uh, uh, bringing up, is that there is a scene where Peter has a vision of this large sheet coming down and all these different kinds of animals are in there, including the ones that were previously forbidden. Uh, and he's saying, uh, the angel says, uh, slaughter and eat. And then Peter says, oh no, not me, because these are forbidden and I have never eaten any of those kind of forbidden uh, foods. And the angel said to him, Whatever God made is not forbidden. Alright? But that's a whole different context. He's talking about the spirituality of what God made, and it was used to enlighten Peter that the difference between Jews and Gentiles, there was no difference in the eyes of God. Alright? Um, he was the seeing there the vision there was to say or tell Peter that the forbidden animals were like the Gentiles and the acceptable animals were like the Jews but in God's eyes they were all equal alright uh, does that make sense uh, totally different reason but He's bringing two things together. I hope I explained it uh, sufficiently. Okay. All right. Anybody want to add anything to chapter one?
Anybody have a different idea or a different concept? No? Okay, well, we got through that one easy. Alright. Chapter 2. This is uh, one of those odd stories where the king has a dream and he is terrified by the dream. But he won't tell anybody what it is. And he wants somebody, you know, so he brings in all his magicians and sorcerers and the Chaldeans and whatever, including Daniel and so forth. Uh, and he wants to know and he demands to know uh, what this dream means. But in order for him to feel it's a reliable answer, He's demanding that whoever answers tell him what the dream is in the first place, you know, which is an impossible situation. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, And, of course, no one can do that, you know. It's like saying, kids say, well, I've got a number in mind. You tell me what it is. Uh, Well, can't read minds. The whole idea, of course here uh, is a test beyond uh, the possibility of being solved. Now, of course, this is a story, again, to make Daniel look uh, very bright and so forth and a a leading character. The dream, of course, and Daniel tells this, the dream is sort of incidental uh, to the rest of the story, but nevertheless, the dream has an important of it, importance of its own. It's a dream of a, a very large statue, where the head is gold, the neck and the chest uh, are iron or silver, and uh, the torso is iron, and the legs are something else, the clay. Wooden, wooden clay, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> that is really an analogy of the various uh, relationships through war and conquering uh, that Israel experienced from the time of the original Babylonian exile uh, until now. Remember, This was all in reference to the second century, but the storyline was put back into the sixth century. And you have that time difference, uh, which you always have to keep in mind. (coughs) We're not really talking about King Nebuchadnezzar and his family or his court. We're talking about the Greek king Antiochus IV and his conquering of Palestine and and the Jewish people. The story is, or the dream, you might say, that Daniel relates, is really something that already has happened. And the writer of the story, obviously, is aware of that. So he talks about the statue. The gold is the... uh, Babylonian uh, nation, you might say, 
The uh, iron is the Medes. The uh, no, the, the iron is the the silver is the Medes. Uh, the iron is the Greeks, and finally uh, we get well. It's a little confusing, and I don't remember exactly all. But the last part of it, the legs and the feet, are really the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great died, and it was broken up into ten different little sub-kingdoms, you might say. Five of them in North Africa and five uh, through uh, southern uh, Europe and and part of Asia, all right? And, of course, those just happen to represent <clears throat> or are, are represented by the toes of the statue, which are part wood and part clay or something like that, part iron and part clay, which, of course, cannot uh, be fused together. And, of course, they crumble. The point that is made here in this story is that... <clears throat> The rule of Antiochus will uh, perish just like the previous ones did. All right. And it's, the whole idea is to hang in there, people, because this is a temporary situation. And if we are faithful to God, we will get through it. And they did. Anybody have a different opinion or a different idea? Of that story, and um, so on. Okay. Want to contribute anything new or add to it? Oh, now come on, come on. Huh? All right, let's let's move on. Chapter three: The king builds a statue and requires everyone to worship it. Now. It isn't necessarily the same as the previous one uh, in the dream, but nevertheless, the storyline is somewhat the same. In this case, he builds a statue. Remember, it was 90 feet high and, and 9 feet wide, which was a little out of proportion, or the statue was a very chubby person, okay? Uh, and he's requiring that uh, at the sound of the, the music, the hills are alive. Um, at the sound of music, everybody had to fall down and worship the statue. And of course, Daniel and his companions would not do that. They would only worship the God of Israel. Totally uh, sort of contrived situation. Nevertheless, there is a point behind it. Okay. And <laughs> Some uh, jealous uh, co-workers of Daniel and his friends uh, decide to report them because this is something that uh, they think they will be able to uh, get away with. <clears throat> and Daniel and his friends are threatened with uh, being tossed into the, the fiery furnace. Okay? And uh, it seems that... Uh, they were, and nothing happens. And the uh, king gets uh, very 
uh, upset about it, and he orders that the fiery furnace be stoked even more so, to the point where those men that who are stoking the furnace uh, get uh, consumed in the fire as well. But when the king finally looks in, he sees not only the the three companions of Daniel uh, sort of singing and parading around in the fiery furnace, which must have been pretty good size. Uh, <clears throat> he sees a fourth person in there uh, who looks like the Son of God. And of course, that is an allegory uh, that goes back to many stories in the Old Testament where Jesus, where God has saved people from uh, various situations uh, by his own hand, by what is called the angel of the Lord. Remember, I've said uh, several times that whenever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, uh, in the Old Testament, that's an indication of God himself. God himself. Uh, intervening in some way. And that's what we have here. God himself has saved these uh, people from the fiery furnace. Okay. And of course, uh, when the king, in this case, uh, it's Nebuchadnezzar, again, this is wishful thinking on the part of the writer, all right, who was writing this in the second century to give the people of that time period uh, something to hold on to. Remember, stories were very important to these people. It was a form of entertainment. It was a form of communication. It was a form of education. And often they were disguised uh, sense of reality. And that's what we have here. These were stories that were disguising the real situation that was going on, but it was intended as uh, an uplifting um, story of hope. All of these stories are of that category. Stories of hope. Any problem with that? Anybody have a different idea? June? to be, we're told the things that we're supposed to be, which is, gives us the statue of what we're supposed to do to gain eternal life. Yeah. And then we sin, and we go into the fiery furnace, and we get the penance, there's the sackcloth and all that stuff. And then we see in this uh, penance that we have to do, we see God in there, and God says, you behave yourself, and you're going to come to heaven with me, so we go through purgatory, which is kind of like fire, so we get to where God says, now you can come to heaven. Hey. That's a little story that I kind of think. Well, I think that's good. <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah. It, it, in a way, paraphrases this particular story, and yeah, it, it kind of fits modern day thinking. Very good. Yeah. And, and that's fine. There's, you know, nothing wrong with, um, developing your own way of thinking uh, some important point of your faith. Uh, 
I remember years ago when I was teaching the Gospel of Matthew in which we find the present way of saying the Our Father. All right. And I was saying uh, that if some of the words really don't make sense to you or are not comfortable uh, for you when you recite the Our Father, to make it more meaningful, there's no reason why you can't change those words. And a few people said, oh, you can't do that. You can't change words of prayers like the Our Father. Those came right from God himself. I said, that's true. But you can change the words if it makes it more meaningful for you. All right? Um, you can't change the words to change the meaning for yourself or anyone else. But if it helps to enhance the meaning, there's no reason why. You know, when I say the Our Father in personal devotions, <coughs> not when I'm in a group, you know, or reciting a rosary in, in a group, but when I'm alone, uh, my Our Father is about twice the length uh, of the words that you find in the book. That's because I have added enough to make it meaningful for me. Okay. For example, when it says, give us this day our daily bread. Well, you know, a lot of people don't eat bread for a variety of reasons, you know, on diets or maybe they can't consume gluten or something like that. But that's not what that means. Bread to the Jewish people is a sign of life. Even in modern days, if a Orthodox Jewish person goes to somebody's house, for example, for a special occasion, particularly a new house or uh, new to the owner, they take a loaf of bread. It's to offer new life to this situation, whatever it might be. Okay. So if you think about it, give us this day our daily bread is really saying, Father, give us this day our portion of life for today. See, see the difference what that makes? When I moved here, a Jewish friend of mine gave me a loaf of bread and salt. Uh huh. That's right. Yeah. In other words, but the salt, what is the salt? I was going to ask you if No, no. Salt, well, let's put it this way. The bread is life. The salt is beware of problems. Okay? Beware of troubles. They will come. But if you have faith, you'll get through them. That's what the salt means. Yeah. Yes, Fiona. Uh-huh. Sure. That's, you know, the whole idea of throwing rice at a wedding. Same idea. Same idea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 
the salt is a good omen, you might say, and or the rice. And the salt is beware that there will be problems, but hang in there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, that's super, that's superstition. That, that's superstition. <laughs> well, alright. That's leprechaun talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any other comments? Alright, Jose? Yeah, well, you know, there's, for every good story, there's always going to be somebody who's going to try to put it down. So, there's no way to combat that. Yes, what Jose is saying is that (coughs) in the story of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, uh, (coughs) yes, people probably did bring uh, some food for themselves and maybe for their family but not enough to feed 5,000 or whatever it was, people. Even if it was 500 people, a few fish would never never cover it. So the multiplication, obviously, <clears throat> had to be a true miracle. And whoever brought, you know, small provisions uh, probably consumed them during the day anyways. Remember, the story is that they had been with Christ all day long. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd throw a little, pardon the expression, a grain of salt at the number of 5,000. <coughs> uh, but I, you made it. Okay. Um, but, you know, when, when scripture was translated uh, many times and done so by hand, it's very easy to say, oh, that's so insignificant number, let's add a zero on the end, you know. Uh, so I think most of the numbers throughout the Bible are somewhat exaggerated. But that's not unusual. The Jewish people uh, used exaggeration to make a point. Sometimes it got a little out of hand, but nevertheless, uh, the Jewish people used a lot of exaggeration uh, and duplication. Even the story of the 4,000 being fed by Christ uh, is often thought as a possible duplication to make a point of its importance. So I wouldn't be overly concerned, but when you have doubts about the the numbers, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not so much the numbers It's the story behind the numbers that really counts. And the whole story behind the multiplication of the loaves and fishes is, of course, uh, a precursor to the multiplication of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist. All right. Let us go on. Chapter 4. The king is very pleased with all of his accomplishments. The first few years of the reign of Antiochus IV uh, was not difficult. It was not um, 
uh, slash and burn and, and conquering and that kind of way. It was a movement of the Greek uh, culture, the Hellenistic culture, being forced upon the Jewish people. And at first, that was uh, somewhat acceptable. I think Elijah just came in that door. <laughs> I don't think it's going to work, but that's all right. We'll let Elijah sit up there. The uh, king is very uh, pleased with himself, you might say. And he uh, has uh, a large banquet, and he's using the vessels from the temple uh, as drinking vessels. vessels. And uh, in this large banquet, he sort of gets carried away, you might say. Now, did you say you were four? Um, that was five. Oh, well, all right. Sorry, sorry about that. Oh, yep. Uh, oh, the tree, yes. Sorry about that. Thank you. Yes, I got carried away. <clears throat> the story of, of the dream, another dream. Remember, dreams were very important uh, throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, even into the early part of the New Testament. Remember the dreams between um, or the dreams that Mary had and the dreams that Joseph had, you know, right, and the dreams that Elizabeth or her husband really had, and that kind of thing. Dreams and visions were very important uh, throughout the Old Testament as were ways of God communicating with his people. And these were real. Uh, I don't want to mislead you. The dreams and the communications uh, through angels, etc., were real. And why don't we have that today? Anyone? Hmm? <laughs> We're the internet. Yeah, no, 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 no. The church is now the vehicle that God uses to speak to his people. The church is now the prophets of the Old Testament. Somebody asked me, well, why don't we have prophets anymore? We do. They're the theologians of the church. And the angels and all of that that were used as messengers in the Old Testament in the beginning of uh, Christianity are now the part of the church. The church speaks for God. The church speaks for Jesus Christ. The church is the extension of Jesus Christ. You may not like some of the things that you hear and you <clears throat> because Jesus left the church in the hands of human beings and we all have our faults and failures, okay, uh, but nevertheless, God is really still working with his people, his faithful people, but in this case, now it is through the church. All right. The saints, remember, do not tell us anything new about God. That has been revealed and will 
in the first century. That's why we call uh, the Catholic Church the Apostolic Church, all right? The one true Catholic and Apostolic Church, right in our Nicene Creed. The word apostolic implies that what we have learned about God came from Christ through the apostles in the first century. After that, everything else was an interpretation of what came out of the first century. Nothing new about God or Jesus came after that. Important point to remember. But the saints are telling us things about Jesus that he has told us, but they're reaffirming those kinds of things. None of the saints have told us anything new about Jesus, but they have reconfirmed or affirmed things that Jesus has told us in the first century. <clears throat> so, a uh, little bit of that cold is still hanging on here. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Ruth was just mentioning. Uh, many of the saints have left us records of their visions of Christ and what he has said. The most recent that I'm aware of <coughs> is St. Faustina, who died in 1939. Uh, and, of course, she is the one that has promoted the um, chaplet of the Divine Mercy. If you read her book, she had many visions of Christ. And he told her many things, but nothing was new. Uh, all of it was told in previous ways to other people. Uh, as far back as the first century. And we have many, many writers of that. In fact, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, which we talked about last night in the evening class, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, who spent, uh, who lived only 33 years, but had a tremendous uh, accomplishment, list of accomplishments uh, that were far beyond uh, human imagination, right? Far beyond what anybody, particularly a woman of that time period, uh, could have done, right? She was more like a Joan of Arc of her, her time. All the saints, good point, all the saints were ordinary people to begin with. Well, uh, the only thing that you can do is write it down and pray about it. Ask God what he wants you to do about it. That's all. And take it from there. He'll take it from there. Oh, well, 
all the priests over at Christ the King Retreat Center, uh, the priests now, not the brothers, is one brother, uh, Kurt, brother Kurt, no, but there are priests over there, that's their job, to give spiritual direction. You have uh, a whole group of nuns in Burlingame, California, and the mother house of the Sisters of Mercy. Uh, that's their job, to give spiritual direction. You have another group in in Davis. Um, I don't know too much about that group in Davis, but I know there are, there's a school of spiritual uh, direction in Davis. Okay, So spiritual direction is very important, uh, particularly if anyone is inclined to feel being called by God uh, to do something uh, unusual or special. Don't just start on, on your own and, you know, do it willy-nilly. It's, well, that's right. Get uh, get some advice. True spiritual advice from some advice from someone who is trained in that era. Okay. Uh, I haven't heard anything, so no, I can't. Yeah. Well, it would not be new in the in the sense that it is um, have been kept a secret all this time. No, no. Everything about Jesus Christ that is ever going to be uh, known until we get to heaven has already been revealed. That's the whole meaning of apostolic church, all right? Uh, and that is why you don't have any writings in the Bible that came along afterwards, even though there are a lot of beautiful, very good, and helpful. Uh, they're not new in the sense that they reveal something entirely new about God or Christ. Now, Mary is an entirely different situation, okay? Uh, we've had new things uh, in the apparitions from Mary, particularly the Immaculate Conception. Okay. Uh, but not about Jesus. No. Okay. Uh, back on chapter 4. The king has a dream. In this case, it's different from the previous uh, situation where he tells uh the magicians and the astrologers and so forth and so on, uh, that the dream is about a beautiful tree that he sees and uh, it, it has very good fruit that's uh, very edible and so forth and so on. But then all of a sudden, uh, the tree is cut down and uh, the limbs and everything are shredded uh, and the tree is virtually destroyed, but the stump is left. Okay, And the stump is covered with... Uh, bronze and iron or something. Uh, and he demands to know what that's all about. <clears throat> um, and of course, you know, Daniel to the rescue is the only one that can tell what it's all about. And it, again, it's a vision of himself, the vision of the king, 
because he refused uh, to abide and honor uh, the king of the God of Israel. Uh, and it's an explanation that his kingdom is going to be uh, destroyed. And of course, this uh, in this story, even though Daniel divulges the meaning of the dream, the gloom and doom, Daniel is honored, you know. Uh, just doesn't quite ring true, but that's the way the story goes. Anyone have a problem with that? I hope I gave you uh, enough uh, enough of the story to at least indicate what it's all about. No one wants to add anything? All right, let's go on. Chapter 5, and this is where I was a little mixed up here, ahead of myself. The king gives a, a lavish banquet, and here he uses the gold vessels, uh, gold and silver vessels from the temple. Now, this is paraphrasing something that actually did happen, all right, where there, <coughs> the temple was plundered by the Greek conquerors and the vessels were taken. This happened not only at the time of Antiochus the uh, fourth, but it did happen at the time of Nebuchadnezzar back in the 6th century uh, during the Babylonian conquering and exile. So you have it twice, really, where the uh, gold and silver vessels of the temple. These are sacred vessels, as you probably know, the Jewish people, uh, when they are uh, administering their religious ceremonies, use certain vessels that cannot be used uh, at any other time. And in a kosher house, uh, a true uh, kosher family will have a separate set of dishes that are used only at uh, holiday time, Hanukkah, uh, Yom Kippur, and many of the uh, quarterly uh, liturgies and ceremonies and, and holy days, all right? A separate set of dishes that are not used